Short Rounds. Hey, y'all, and welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers podcast. I am your host, James Hauser, and boy, have I got a good one for you guys today. Today is the first short round of season two. If you don't know what these are, because I haven't done a standalone short round in a while, these are short snippets, 30 minutes or less, about a topic that doesn't need the full episode treatment, but I think is interesting, noteworthy, quirky, or in this case, stupid. No music in these episodes, no breaks, just a quick dash of something. I also do these sometimes during my series to gather up loose ends or address side stories from the bigger narrative. So just to get the housekeeping out of the way, when I do short rounds from now on, I will be doing them on Mondays. No Friday episodes anymore, that was just too much for me to handle and the schedule got confusing. So when I do offbeat episodes, like interviews or short rounds or whatever, they will be in the off weeks between main episodes. Hence, this one. Got it? Moving on. Okay, so this story is something I've had on the back burner for a while now, and I wanted to talk about it. People have wanted me to talk about it, but I decided to do it after the Kokoda episode. I wanted to first establish how awesome Australian military history can be, how amazing Australia can be, because this story is the low point of that military history. This one is really stupid, guys. In fact, this might be one of the stupider things to happen ever. Um, today's short round will cover Australia's Emu War of 1932, where the Australian military literally went into combat against a bunch of birds. Emu, emu, I'm probably going to say emu because it's easier to pronounce. This event is also a meme, a common joke people on the internet make at Australia's expense. And you're probably wondering, James, are the memes true? Can this story really be as ludicrously stupid as the internet says? Does Australia deserve to be made fun of for this? My answer is yes. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> this might be even dumber than y'all think. This is the dumbest thing I've talked about in this podcast so far. It's also going to be a nice palate cleanser because the next few weeks will be a little less amusing. I am also going to tell this story as dramatically and hyperbolically and just melodramatically as possible. Just for fun. But still, this is not just history, but military history. There is very little dark and bloody stuff this week, so laugh it up today, because next week gets darker and bloodier than ever. The podcast is PG-13, language is clean, content is not. All my sources will be hosted on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com. So if you don't believe what I'm about to tell you, and it is kind of unbelievable, take a look. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. I'm trying to be entertaining, but all the information I'm giving you is accurate. I'm serious. Dead serious. This is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people and some very angry birds who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. So, our story begins after World War I, when Australia's war veterans came home from the war and wanted to know how they were going to be compensated for their war service. In the 1920s, Australian veterans' benefits became a big political issue. Because Australia was pretty broke at the time. But they had one thing. Plenty of spare land. It's Australia. After all, it's, it's huge. So the government just said, hey, let's give some of these great war vets a huge tract of land out on the outback frontier of Western Australia. There you go. That's your pension. Bunch of land to grow wheat and raise livestock and chase kangaroos or whatever. Problem solved. So a bunch of these war vets took the government up on this offer. Problem was that these farmlands had been free for a very good reason. They were garbage. This was the outback, mates, and no steakhouses in sight. 
very dry, crusty soil without a lot of water. Dryland farming is very difficult and very marginal. It's the, the outback fringe is very dependent on the local weather conditions, which in the early 1930s were about to get really bad. Things were already hard enough before 1929 when the Great Depression hit Australia. This caused the price of food, especially grain, to fall, threatening to drive many of the soldier settlers into poverty. And since it was, became unusually dry in the early 1930s, they're producing less grain that's selling for a lesser price. The Depression had similar effects worldwide, resulting in the Great Plains Dust Bowl in the United States and the Great Famine in Ukraine in the early 1930s, with some help from Stalin on that last one. But in Australia, it started a chain of events that led to the Emu War. Because as grain prices fell, the Australian government encouraged the farmers to grow more to compensate. But what does overproduction do? Economics 101, it lowers prices. The grain price is falling. Grow more grain. Grain price is still falling, mate. Grow even more grain, etc. So when the farmers said to the government, hey, you guys told us to grow more. What are you guys doing up there? Help us out. The government offered to buy all the grain they produced at fixed rates. So the farmers grew more grain than ever. But then the bill came to the Australian Senate in 1930 at about the same time that grain prices took a nosedive, so they rejected it. Oops, now the farmers had a bunch of grain, nothing to do with it, and they were really mad at the government. By 1932, the farmers had had enough. They refused to load up any grain until the government paid up. The agricultural crisis in Western Australia was headed for a showdown, but then the tides of history shifted. For they all were confronted with a new enemy, an enemy with no mercy. The great plague descended on the farmers of Western Australia like legions of hell. The horde had come. The fifth rider of the apocalypse, the emu, had arrived. The emu, for those of you who don't know, is a large flightless bird, soft feathers, a long neck, and long legs, like a less colorful ostrich. They are big, up to six feet high, and fast, reaching speeds up to 30 miles per hour. And there are lots of these jokers. By the 1920s, they were regarded as vermin, like big, long-necked, feathered rats. The issue was that the soldier settlers' new farmlands were very close to emu migration routes. Emus usually migrate in the dry winter months. And in the early 1930s, when those dry spells were much more common and long-lasting, including in Australia, the emus changed course. And would you look at that? There's a whole bunch of grain and water here just waiting for us. The first great offensive of the Emu War, Operation Desert Swarm, if you will, began in October 1932. A horde of 20,000, no joke, 20,000 emus broke through the rabbit-proof fence, a long set of wire fences meant to keep the rabbit infestation out of Western Australian farmlands. The rabbits were an invasive species to Australia, and they were an absolute menace already. They were bad enough. The emus were worse. The emu attack easily ruptured the wire fences, and they thundered into the farmlands en masse like Patton's tanks. But the emus were not alone. They had made an alliance with an even older enemy. Destroying the rabbit-proof fence opened gaps for the rabbits, who also came in droves. Like heavy cavalry making way for the light infantry, the emus destroyed the Australian defenses and opened gaps for the rabbits to invade in the second echelon. The Western Australian farmers were at the mercy of their avian conquerors. The emus ravaged and trampled the grain fields, generally leaving trails of destruction all along the outback fringe. 
Farmers tried to chase them off with rifles, but even a single shot sent the massive birds scampering in every direction, trampling the crop. And the emus weren't just destructive on accident. Some stories have them being actively malicious, like destroying crops on purpose, or ripping up floorboards or breaking into barns to tear up whatever they could find. These birds were jerks. And of course, their rabbit allies provided light infantry support, destroying whatever the emus didn't. The soldier settlers of Western Australia were already having enough issues, what with Great Depression and dry season and all the Western Front PTSD, and now they were losing their entire grain crop to the feathered demon army of the East. The foul beasts were sundering their golden land, leaving pitiless destruction in their wake. And the Western Front vets of the Australian army knew exactly how to solve a problem just like this. The Great War taught them all some very hard lessons about stopping a massive army that threatened to destroy everything they held dear. They wanted machine guns. Machine guns for the emus. Good enough for the German, good enough for an even more heartless adversary. So a small group of soldier settlers went to Perth to lodge a petition, asking the government to provide them with machine guns. Minister of Defense Sir George Pierce heard their call and answered it. Now, the Australian government was not going to start passing out machine guns like Halloween candy. That was downright irresponsible. After all, what if the emus got their hands on one? Then there'd be real problems. So instead, Minister of Defense Pierce decided to send a few soldiers with machine guns to go take part in some pest control. None of the government's reasons for doing this look very good in hindsight. It seemed like a good idea at the time. They were facing criticism for failing to solve the farming crisis, especially after they promised to buy all that grain and then, well, didn't. The local army commander pitched it as a good field exercise, a test of machine gunnery against rapidly moving targets, which seems like the kind of thing an idiot would say. There was also a light cavalry unit nearby whose colonel wanted emu plumes and skins for his soldiers' new headgear, which is at least a tangible justification that doesn't sound like absolute brain rot. And finally, the government wanted to show that it was doing something, anything to help the farmers. They really seemed to believe that this would be good PR. So in their infinite wisdom, the Australian government decided to send a cameraman to get footage of this heroic action. So yeah, this would be filmed, ensuring that no one could ever forget this happened. The fact that they wanted this thing on record honestly blows my mind. I have no idea what led them to believe blowing away a bunch of trailer park big birds with machine guns would lead to good press for the government, but maybe they just drank their dum-dum juice that day. I don't know. Three soldiers, three brave, glorious crusaders, were selected to carry out the holy war against the infidel emu. Their names will live in song and legend forever. Major G.P.W. Meredith of the Royal Australian Artillery, and two enlisted men, Sergeant McMurray and Gunner O'Halloran. They were equipped with two Lewis light machine guns and 10,000 rounds of ammunition. These heroes would be followed by the cameramen to immortalize their glorious righteous struggle against the dastardly emu. I mean, look, look, even if this went well, it was going to look really stupid. And it didn't go well. The Lewis light machine gun was a solid weapon, much beloved by the British forces that wielded them in World War I. Each top-mounted pan magazine held 47 or 97 rounds of brass-coated bird-killing bullets. 
I can only assume that these machine guns were blessed and sanctified by the local priests, maybe dipped in holy water, before being wielded against the satanic flightless foes. On November 2nd, 1932, the saviors of mankind arrived in Campion, Western Australia, for their first showdown with the emu. And as luck would have it, around 40 or 50 emus arrived at exactly the same time. Major Meredith decided, hey, we'll, we'll start here. He asked some local farmers to herd those emus, the 40 or 50 emus, towards his men so they could kill them with the Lewis guns. But the emus refused to cooperate. The enemy always gets a vote. Instead of kindly running into the trap, the emus broke up into small groups and fled into a nearby forest. Sergeant McMurray was frustrated. He opened fire at around a thousand yards, almost beyond the range of the Lewis gun. His first burst fell short, but the second burst managed to kill a couple of emus. All the rest of them got away. First blood had been shed. The shot heard round the world. Later that day, Meredith and his men managed to surprise a small flock near the McGeorge farm, and they managed to kill another dozen birds before the rest, again scattered into the outback. Thus ended the first day of the Emu War, a date which would live in infamy. Meredith and his men were starting to realize this would be harder than they thought, but they had no idea what was coming. The truly great confrontation, the Gettysburg of the Emu War, if you will, would take place on November 4th, 1932. The Emus had started to avoid the soldiers, only venturing out in small groups and hiding in the woods. Clever girls. So Major Meredith and some local farmers built an ambush near a local water source, hoping the emus would have to come to them. And they got their wish on the morning of November 4th. The Australians looked out to see a horde of almost a thousand emus coming towards them at 20 miles an hour, heads bobbing, tiny useless wings flapping, eyes full of murder. It was like Beakett's Charge, the charge of the flightless brigade, Iwo Jimu. Okay, I'm done. As the massive cloud of emus rushed towards them, Gunnar O'Halloran awaited them. Closer, closer, like a man staring into an angry, squawking hurricane, the hero stood his ground. Finally, at 100 yards, almost point-blank range, he squeezed the trigger. The Lewis gun fired, and then it jammed. O'Halloran tried to fix the jam, even as the farmers opened up with their rifles. But it was too late. The gods of war had not smiled on the humans this day. The hordes scattered in every direction, back to the safety of the trees, snatching victory from the jaws of defeat. The Australians waited all day for the emus to reappear, but to no avail. As for the twenty emus who fell with their faces to the enemy, they had given the last full measure of devotion. We have every reason to believe they ascended to Emu Valhalla, welcomed by Emu Odin and Emu Thor into the embrace of the ancestors. By day three of the Emu War, the Australian press were having a field day. They described their enemies as skilled and dangerous opponents. The Emus literally adapted their tactics to fit the new combat situation, displaying more creative thinking than lots of modern armies. Here's what one observer said. The emus have proved that they are not so stupid as they are usually considered to be. Each mob has its leader, always an enormous black-plumed bird standing fully six feet high, who keeps watch while his fellows busy themselves with the wheat. At the first suspicious sign, he gives the signal, and dozens of heads stretch up out of the crop. 
A few birds will take fright, starting a headlong stampede for the scrub, the leader always remaining until his followers have reached safety. So, the emus are displaying creative and flexible small unit leadership, and their officers never left a bird behind. That's taking care of your soldiers right there. You gotta wonder if there was like an emu general above all these captains, like some one-eyed grizzled old bird giving speeches, coordinating attacks, drawing little plans in the, in the dust with his talons. Let's call him Emulius Caesar. <laughs> if the emus wouldn't come to the soldiers, the soldiers would have to go to them. It was time to get mobile. Major Meredith and his men decided to mount one of the Lewis guns on the back of a pickup truck and chase the emus down. This redneck clown show ended about like you'd expect. This is a 1930s pickup truck with all the suspension of a radio flyer wagon. It chased the emus at 35 miles an hour, but on this rough terrain, it wasn't able to outrun them. The emus were literally faster. Poor Gunner O'Halloran barely managed to stay in the bed of the bouncing truck, much less fire a single shot at the emu battalions of death. If he had fired, it probably would have been more dangerous to everyone in the truck than to a single emu. You gotta imagine this, man. You can't make this up. I just hear the Benny Hill theme playing in my head. One farmer did manage to run down one emu with his truck, vehicular killing, but this is a big six-foot-tall bird. This ain't roadkill material. The emu gave its life dearly. Its body got caught in the steering gear, sending the truck swerving off the road and plowing up a bunch of several meters of fence. Good night, sweet prince. You did not die in vain. On November 8th, reports came out that Major Meredith and his gallant heroes had expended 2,500 rounds, a quarter of all their ammunition, to kill 200 emus. And 200 is probably exaggerated, it's probably closer to 50, just based on the everything about this story. They might have kept up the fight, adapted their tactics, and turned the tide against their feathered foes, but like so many wars against a guerrilla opponent, the occupying forces had lost on the home front. The first campaign of the Emu War came to an end because the Australian government had gotten wind of the fact that people were laughing at them. This looked really stupid, it was really stupid, and it was on camera so no one could deny how stupid it was. And worst of all, it hadn't even worked. The emus were still out there, waiting. The politicians and the press had a field day with the emu war. On November 9th, the Prime Minister had to answer questions from Parliament about this hillbilly nonsense going on out in Western Australia. One politician asked if they were going to hand out medals to all the brave heroes fighting in this war. Another politician said, you know, the medals should probably go to the emus, who have by all accounts won every round so far. It was also noted that the military's campaign hadn't just been ineffective, it had been counterproductive, because all those escaping emus, whenever someone fires a shot, they just trampled all the grain in their path. The army had exacerbated rather than prevented the damage to farmers' crops. One ornithologist, a scientist who studies birds, if you didn't know, observing from afar, had this to say about the first campaign of the Emu War. The machine gunners' dreams of point-blank fire into serried masses of emus were soon dissipated. The Emu Command had evidently ordered guerrilla tactics, and its unwieldy army soon split into innumerable small units that made use of the military equipment uneconomic. 
a crestfallen field force therefore withdrew from the combat area after about a month. Soon after the end of the first campaign, Major Meredith filed his report. In it, he noted that the emu was actually extremely difficult to kill. It must be realized that an emu full out can do 45 miles per hour. Consequently, the target is, after the first burst, a very rapidly moving one and is only visible for a very short time. Moreover, the emu is an amazingly hard bird to kill outright. Many carry mortal wounds up to a distance of half a mile on actual observation. Major Meredith continued, his report taking on a tone of all respect and fear. If we had a military division with the bullet-carrying capacity of these birds, it would face any army in the world. They can face machine guns with the invulnerability of tanks. They are like Zulus, whom even dumb-dumb bullets would not stop. Major Meredith concluded his report by noting that, well, look on the bright side. Except for the farmer's truck, at least we didn't suffer any casualties. Which, geez, I hope not. Thus ended the first campaign of the Emu War. Barely any damage had been done to the 20,000-strong Emu herd, Yahweh's 11th plague upon the earth. The Australian government and military were humiliated, Newspapers around the country poked fun at the redneck stupidity of the whole thing. Defense Minister George Pierce was nicknamed Minister for the Emu War. Imagine that being that's what you're remembered for. <laughs> Worst of all, the emus were still at large, and now they were combat experienced. They were veterans. So the government decided to try again, for whatever reason. They went back to Major Meredith and had him lead his two soldiers, whom the press now called his merry men, on a second emu campaign. I imagine them like eating Vegemite and drinking Victoria bitters in Perth, reliving the horrors of the last campaign, seeing the birds flash before their eyes, bracing for what lay ahead. We three, we merry three, we band of brothers. The second campaign started on November 13th, and it went a little better than the first one. The Australian soldiers managed to ambush a few small flocks and rack up some decent kills, but the emus remained surprisingly hard to destroy. One farmer did run down another bird with his truck, this seems to be like one of the most productive methods so far, somehow, and when they inspected the body, they found that it was already carrying five bullets from previous encounters. They hit this thing five times and it wasn't dead. You gotta be kidding me. These things have hit points. One soldier remembered. There's only one way to kill an emu. Shoot him through the back of the head when his mouth is closed, or through the front of his mouth when his mouth is open. That's how hard it is. Are you serious? You gotta shoot him in the head? Like zombies? They have weak spots like a freaking video game boss character? Is this real life? The emus adapted with the tactical flexibility of natural warriors. They started to stay beyond the machine gun's effective range. They figured out the machine gun's effective range. They looped around to ravage the wheat crops wherever the soldiers weren't, using tactical avoidance. They made strategic penetrations into the farmer's rear areas. Poor Gunner O'Halloran reported being overwhelmed when one careless farmer failed to shut his gate. Suddenly the emus were all around him. He barely even had time to fire. What? Finally, by December 2nd, the combined offensive began, with support from all the local farmers and even a rifleman's marksmanship club. Major Meredith reported that now, 
Now they got a consistent system. They were killing 100 emus per week. At that rate, they would wipe out the swarms at some point around the heat death of the universe. With all this in mind, with wasting a bunch of ammunition with nothing to show for it, on December 10th, 1932, the government called off the campaign. Major Meredith estimated that they had killed 2,500 emus, though this was certainly far too high. Even if it wasn't, that was only an eighth of the horde. The government had failed to impress the farmers with their desire to help. The military was embarrassed, and deservedly so. After all, they couldn't even kill a bunch of stupid birds. And the light cavalry colonel never even got those emu skins or feathers for his headgear. The Australian cavalry's uniforms would remain featherless, plumeless, utterly without swag. Such are the horrors of war. The emu war had been a miserable failure. Never again would the Australian military deploy machine guns against the fearsome feathery phalanx. Once was really stupid, twice was even more stupid. I know not what weapons Emu War 2 will be fought with, but Emu War 3 will be fought with sticks and stones. But don't tell that to the farmers. In 1934, 1938, and even 1943, the soldier settlers of Western Australia sent up the same pet petition, requesting an emu war rematch with those machine guns. They, like, they wanted to keep going. They wanted to continue this idiocy. But the government was like, no, that was stupid. We're never going to live that down, and we're not doing it again. Instead, the government started to offer bounties for emu heads. And I imagine this made the farmers' eyes turn red like they were possessed by Pazuzu, grab their rifles, and run into the outback singing great war songs, determined to answer blood for blood. And the bounties worked. Much better than the machine guns. In only six months in 1934, 57,034 bounties were claimed by Australian farmers. This started the inevitable backlash. Oh no, the emu's going to go extinct which wasn't going to happen. The emus had as much chance of going extinct as like the mosquito does. And in the end, the farmers were satisfied with taking matters into their own hands. I imagine some Gallipoli veteran, some old 50-something coot with half his teeth and a big ranch hat and a rifle in his hand, laughing maniacally atop a pile of emu corpses as an outback storm gathers behind him. Who's laughing now, huh, you bastards? Who's laughing now? As it turned out, the emu problem was solved in the long run by building better fences, which, you know, probably should have been the first and most obvious solution, but it wouldn't have been nearly so much fun. So ended man's most famous war against the beasts of the earth, a war the beasts pretty obviously won. To this day, the emu remains a symbol of Australia, often a patriotic emblem of its diverse wildlife and wide open spaces but also a meme reminding the Australians they lost a war to a bunch of birds. The emu is far from endangered, still roaming the outback to this day, and thank God he stays there. Take a moment today and send your thoughts and prayers to those brave warriors who held the line in 1932. I'm not sure the human race would survive. <laughs> Round two with the emu. Thanks a bunch for listening today. If this made you laugh, I'm just glad it didn't make you cry. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about it and teach them to, that to kill an emu, you gotta shoot it in the head. If you don't like it, tell your enemies, but don't tell the emus I don't want them to come after me. 
Check my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com for all today's sources. And don't forget to look at last week's episode for a story where the Australians look much better than they do in this one. I am always available on Facebook or on Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod. You can even email me at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. And folks, that's all I got today. See you next week on Unknown Soldiers.